You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that thou So. So. When somebody says that, you know you've reached a turning point in the conversation. They are done stacking up their data, and they're ready to turn towards a conclusion or application. Jesus ends our reading for today with so. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The JFB commentary, critical and explanatory on the whole Bible, is a commentary I use quite a bit and is generally very reliable. But it states this about these verses. It says, these are entirely supplementary. That this is the simplest and most natural view of them. All attempts to make out any evident connection with the immediately preceding context are, in our judgment, forced. Why then the word so? This is a connecting word. Jesus is instead doing something remarkably coherent. We don't, we don't want to assume that Jesus didn't know what he was doing as the author of this sermon. He is moved just to rehearse for you where we are at in the Sermon on the Mount. Because we remember, if you remember back in November, we left off with the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 6. We're picking it up at the beginning of chapter 7 and we'll conclude it just before Lent. What Jesus was doing as we concluded chapter 6 was he was talking about treasuring things in heaven more than treasuring things on earth. And there was an accompanying teaching then about not being anxious about the needs of this life. And then he proceeds into what you just heard. These internally focused spiritual disciplines, for they are disciplines of mental focus and emotional attachment, are now to be turned outward toward the human community of which we are a part. Deep spiritual change surely begins in our hearts, but it cannot ultimately be our own private treasure. It must flow outward and transform the world, beginning with the people in our immediate vicinity. Those from whom we have sprung, our family and our local community, and whose world in turn we help to create. And as a modern psychologist has pointed out, by every act, however seemingly inconsequential, we make the world a little bit more like heaven or a little bit more like hell for the people we interact with. Now just as English is a bit impoverished because it has only one word for love in contrast to the New Testament Greek's four different words for love. So we have very different meanings for the word judgment and those different meanings can get us in trouble. 
There's a difference between the judgment of evaluation and the judgment of condemnation. The judgment of condemnation, we are absolutely proscribed from getting engaged in as Christians. Judgment is the Lord's. However, the judgment of evaluation, evaluating people's acts beginning with our own, is something we are called to do. Because we are called to oppose that which is wrong, untrue, and hurtful. We're called to oppose it first in ourselves and then in others. And especially if they are a brother or sister in Christ, we are then called to help correct them, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, in a spirit of gentleness and respect. Doing that can only, only be engaged in safely once we have long practice at the hard internal work of judging and correcting ourselves. Now notice I do not say that once we've done correcting and judging ourselves, that work is never done, it's always ongoing. But the Christian who takes up the difficult but ultimately necessary, and here's the main point, loving task. Necessary and loving task of correcting a brother or sister in godliness needs to be doing so with great fear and trembling. Because there's this constant knowledge we're supposed to have that there may be a great log in our own eye which we're not seeing. (laughs) Striking image. Because we are often blind to our own faults especially the judgmental attitude of condemnation. In order to move into this application phase and this warning phase that's going to dominate chapter 7, Jesus asks us to recall the goodness of our Heavenly Father as evidenced by what? His generosity. He states, everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now, since this teaching follows that on turning our minds away from the concerns and anxieties of this world and Jesus pairs the word ask with the verbs seek and knock and especially knock as a relational verb because you're opening the door to a relationship It should be clear here that Jesus' focus is on spiritual matters, not on material things. Spiritual matters like salvation and wisdom and spiritual knowledge. We just heard, recent weekend, the reading from 2 Kings, where Solomon asks for wisdom. This is the prototypical story. This This is our primary example of how to ask God for what is really necessary. So as Jesus begins to shift to the public application of these internal spiritual virtues he's been talking about to this point, he deliberately turns us once again to the generosity of our Heavenly Father who is always more willing to give than we are to receive. For as Jesus rhetorically asks, if we then who are evil 
know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? If it is hard to be sanctified, if it's hard to be holy in our private lives, how much harder is it to be so in our public lives? How much more will we need God's generosity, God's help? How much more should we be seeking in His Word for His wisdom? How much more should we be knocking upon the door of God's grace? See, the problem we have is that the people around us love us. Many of them at least love us. Because because we're all connected with each other. But here's the reality. Sometimes the people around us make our lives more like hell than like heaven. Even when we love them dearly. (laughs) We're going to need God's grace, God's wisdom, God's word if we're to become holy in our communities, in our families, even more than we need them in our private lives. When I first planned out the schedule of readings for this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount back in last April, I came under the conviction that God wanted us to go straight through the most extended of Jesus' teachings in the New Testament. And I started planning out and breaking the text in what seemed like logical places and I was surprised when I wasn't going to get done by November and realized I wasn't going to get done until almost March of this year. I could not have imagined what kind of turmoil our culture and our country would be embroiled in right now as I got to this text. Robert Kolb is a scholar, a translator of the Book of Concord, which is the Lutheran confessional book. And he stated this in a recent article. He said, As the new year of 2021 begins around the world, it brings the hope of liberation from lockdowns, the end of spiraling numbers of death certificates, and social distancing by the creatures of whom God said it is not good for the man to be alone. The year 21, 2021 brings the hope of social peace instead of a public arena dominated by calls for division, defensiveness, discord all turning us in on ourselves so we will be more vulnerable to domination by those intent on leading people into pride, anger, and hatred. Such attitudes and actions of hostility and divisiveness are the characteristics to which Cain succumbed in the most dramatic demonstration outside Eden of what the fall really meant for daily life. And of course there he means... Cain's killing of his brother, Abel, out of jealousy. We are at a perilous historic moment. I recently heard a historian say that the loudest voices of the left and the right in our country now have less in common than the North and the South did prior to the American Civil War. Let that sink in for a moment less in common than the North and the South had. We have been treated in the last 10 months to violent riots of first the left and now the right. 
Now we have members of Congress and our corporate elite calling for the suppression or shutting down of information sources they deem unreliable. That's, folks, if you didn't notice, that's the abrogation of the First Amendment. Free speech does indeed make for a very messy political process, there's no doubt. But it is what separates totalitarian regimes from free ones. That's why Winston Churchill noted that no one pretends democracy is perfect or all-wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried. Here's the point. You cannot be free without freedom of thought. And you cannot have freedom of thought without freedom of speech. All the catastrophism with which our political actors are motivating their bases is making all of us, in Dr. Kolb's words, more vulnerable to domination. Although it is probably was probably easier for the early Christians to remember since they were busy being fed to lions and such, we, like they, even in our wonderful representative republic, are resident aliens in this world. We are called to live like the Israelites lived when residing in Babylon. As the Lord, through Jeremiah, gave them instruction in today's Old Testament reading. We're to work our gardens, we're to marry and have children, we're to seek the welfare of the city within which we reside, in exile praying to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare we will find our welfare. But we are never to forget that we are in exile and we are aliens. Even when we are convinced that the world is going to hell in a proverbial handbasket, we are not to despair. And even if we are truly to heed Jesus' words in this Sermon on the Mount and seek true sanctification, we're not even to be anxious. I confess I have a little trouble with that one. I'm still a work in progress. And here's why. Here's why. Because the only winner-takes-all struggle whose stakes are eternal is the struggle between Satan and God in Jesus Christ for our soul and for the souls of everyone around us. I quoted the same sermon passage from C.S. Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory, earlier in my sermon series, but that was a couple months ago, so bear with me. But hear these words and hear, hear the depth of them. He writes, There are no ordinary people you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously, no flippancy, 
No superiority. No presumption. The question of how Christians should be faithful resident aliens in this cultural moment is going to be as varied as our different political orientations and prudential judgments. But our political actions and conversations are never, never something we are to settle on apart from our faith. To put it in the simplest terms possible, if Jesus is against it, we are not permitted to be for it. And vice versa. And one thing Jesus makes clear in this Sermon on the Mount is that he is against self-righteousness and treating each other uncharitably. I think that one of the most important things we can do at this historical moment for the country in which we reside as resident aliens, far from our true home in the city of God, is to model for our fellow Americans how to engage in charitable discourse, including correcting one another in the way Jesus instructs us. This at least means to give each other the benefit of the doubt, which if you've never really thought deeply about that phrase, first and foremost means to doubt whether I have it all figured out and to doubt whether the person I'm opposed to is as rotten as my political allies have told me they are. Christians are supposed to know that we have no righteousness of our own, so this should be second nature to us. Now the tremendous civil and political upheaval in our society has us all reeling. I have sat with good and faithful Christians over the last two weeks, including some pastors, who from completely opposite political points of view wonder at and at times even attribute active evil to the motives of those with whose political views they disagree. They may be right in some circumstances. But, having many friends on both ends of the political spectrum, I am certain that they are not right in most. A person may be profoundly wrong without having profoundly evil motivations. Jesus says collectively to those who hear them today that it is they who are evil. His indictment is of everyone listening to him. To those who have come out from the general population explicitly seeking deeper spiritual wisdom. They've cut themselves from the crowd already. And he calls them evil. Is it a stretch to believe as we hear Jesus' words addressed us, addressed to us, excuse me, is it a stretch to believe that we who are evil likely have something to learn from those we disagree with? Since we never seem to be able to see the great plank in our own eye? We are called, whatever our political convictions, to treat others, including our political opponents, as we ourselves would wish to be treated by them. In the small catechism, Martin Luther says this about, explains the Eighth Commandment in this way. The Eighth Commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
This was in a simple way as you teach it to a child. So here it is for all of us, children of the Lord. We should fear and love God. And so, we should not tell lies about our neighbor, nor betray, slander, or defame him, but should apologize for him, speak well of him, and interpret charitably all that he does. So, so, as we sojourn in a land that is not our true home, as we seek the welfare of the city where we reside in exile, in exile from our true and eternal home, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare we will find our welfare, do we feel day to day the weight of glory, the weight of the glory for which we have been prepared and for which we have been saved? Are we ready, as C.S. Lewis said, to take each other seriously, as potentially immortal horrors or everlasting splendors? Are we ready to treat others as we ourselves wish to be treated, attributing to those with whom we disagree, no matter how strongly, something besides evil motives, at least until we're proven otherwise? Are we ready to sit down with our Christian brothers and sisters with whom we disagree politically at the table of God's providence and fellowship? Are we ready to sit down at Jesus' feet as our teacher? Engaging in our civil discourse under the authority of His divine discourse. Granting the benefit of the doubt to those with whom we disagree. Doubt about our own rightness and doubt about them being motivated by evil or ignorance. If we can do so, if we will do so, we will testify to our conviction in the truth of Jesus Christ by acting upon the truth of His words to us this day. And thus we will be sanctified, made holy. If we will do so, we will even set an example for our secular neighbors that might, just might, help preserve our republic. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious Lord Jesus, it is so hard to see when we have a plank in our eyes, a great log, as you say. Help us, Lord, through self-examination to note that log. And by leaning into your grace and cooperating with your word to dislodge it from our eye. Help us when we need to engage in difficult conversations to rest in your peace and know that nothing is ultimate but our relationship with you and through it our relationship with others. Help us, Lord, in this difficult, difficult moment to seek your wisdom, your kingdom, that you may add all the rest unto us. This we ask 
in your precious name, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Be thou my best thought in the day